Good evening, and welcome to this edition of VE Radio. I'm your host, Neil Kiernan. If this is your first time tuning in, be sure to check out my archives where you can find more shows. Uh, I usually interview um, scientists, politicians, senators, congressmen, documentary filmmakers, uh, activists. Uh, I've had recently Lynn Wood, uh, one of the lawyers for Kyle Rittenhouse, was on my show. quite a few shows with Senator Mike Gravel. So lots of good guests and sometimes just some open conversations with good friends of mine who are also activist journalists. And speaking of which, today my guest is Ray Powell. Welcome, Ray. Thanks, Neil. Glad to be back. So obviously, you know, we've done a few shows now, like, you know, we did the one with uh, Hoot not long ago. So I think people are aware of who you are at this point, but, um, to those of you who are just tuning in, Ray and I used to be on a show called the North Virginia Patriots Show during the Ron Paul Revolution. Um, we're both still activist-minded. I would say that our ideologies have evolved considerably over the years, but um, regardless, there's still a lot of common threads, you know, that keep us together as activists, you know, interacting over the years. And um, so, Ray, today we decided we wanted to go live to discuss capitalism versus communism and individualism versus collectivism. And what I think was kind of the crux of it was that I think people have uh, in this false right-left paradigm fight that is constantly going on is that people are under the misconception. I will say misconception because that is kinder (laughs) that there Mm -hmm. is a different outcome for the extremes of one or the other. Uh, The left extremes tend to suggest that communism leads to a utopia, that people like Stalin were victims of vicious propaganda, um, you know, and that they were good people, you know, in the Soviet Union, and that the millions of people that die was either a lie or or whatever. On the capitalist side of things, you know, you kind of have the same thing, only inversed, you know, they think that raw capitalism, you know, is is the way to freedom. And if you go all the way over to the anarcho-capitalist side, then you run into the people who literally think that capitalism could simply run everything um, without a government. Mm-hmm. So I think that the crux of this is that when you really break it down, anybody who's being intellectually honest with themselves would suggest and understand that both of those systems taken to their extremes lead to a similar outcome, which is a small group of people making decisions for a large group of people, and more importantly, doing much better than the average citizen, um, you know, considerably better, you know, whether it was the Soviet Union's leadership that was doing far better um, than the average Soviet citizen, or the capitalist, you know, United States, for example, where we have a small oligarchy making all the decisions. And I see that, you know, generally what people suggest is that communism is less free because of the Soviet totalitarian model is makes it pretty obvious who's in control. And what I've always said over the years, particularly when I was talking from the perspective of the zeitgeist movement, was that capitalism is just as totalitarian it's just far more insidious about it because the there's still mass death 
it just tends to be externalized to outside of the immediate citizen's view. So the mass starvation goes on in countries like Africa, when we go and take all of their resources and then leave them poor and starving, you know, the, uh, they, they control us not necessarily through direct fascist laws, usually, <laughs> I say usually, um, but instead oh. through a vast network of advertising, brainwashing, to give us the illusion that we are free. And based on the idea that if we just work hard enough, we can all be Jeff Bezos or, you know, one of these multiple ridiculous billionaires that has, you know, 98% of the wealth or something ridiculous. I don't have the stats offhand anymore, but the wealth gap just keeps increasing. And ironically through COVID has also just gotten even worse. So anyway, that's kind of the baseline of this. And we'll also talk about, individualism versus collectivism because these two things tend to be considered to be linked as if they are basically the same thing the communist being collectivist and individualism being capitalism etc so let me just open the floor first to you then and say you know you wanted to have this conversation alive so what what is it that you wanted to touch on about it yeah well uh first of all i guess anyone who's tuning in if they were expecting us to be debating this for for a sad surprise, I guess, because I think we're we're mostly going to agree on this, and I think that's the whole point of what it is. In that, um, you know, there was a time I think when we were we were unable to understand how we agree on this back in the day, uh, right. which led to some really really intense um, moments of debate and kind of like even even personal, um, you know, kind of incoherence or whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like at this point, it's it's pretty obvious to me um, that you know there's there's synergies to be found within. There's good things about both of these, uh, both you know in terms of individualism and collectivism. There's 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 principles within there, those philosophies that are critical to understand and that are good principles. And there's principles that are in both of those philosophies that are. Uh, that are false in the same, you know, if you want to um, use a dichotomy of capitalism versus communism, you have the same thing there, good, good things and bad things. Um, and so if you just take the good things from both, you, you can, it's not as hard as people think to take the good things from both. And um, it, we probably live in a world, Neil, I don't know how you feel about this where, but, you know, I mean, you know, when you, if you, if you become a uh, conspiracy theory or theory theorist, right. Which a is theory a word these days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that word. Yeah. Um, uh, these days, which is like the replacement for what used to be called investigative reporting, right? Um, but if you go down the rabbit hole um, and you do understand certain terms, like you can come to the realization um, of the usage of the Hegelian dialectic in the you know power circles of elite to where they understand that um, there's a desired goal for a centralization of power. And you'll see that when, no, no matter how you talk about individualism or collectivism or communism or capitalism, the, the downside of where they lead is a centralization of power to where you have an elite class controlling everybody. And so um, the actual elite class that is able to exist in the current um, socioeconomic paradigm has actually done the research to understand that if you want a certain synthesis, if you want to move the population of the world in a certain direction and you can control the public discourse – through uh, in this modern day, through controlling the media, you can create what Hegelian described as the thesis, what Hegel was his name, 
Hegel described as the thesis on one side, and you can create the antithesis on the other side, and then you can generate a battle between these two sides to where they finally arrive at the synthesis, which is the thing you wanted all along. And so, um, you know, I'm pretty sure that the, the, the stark divide that we feel about these subjects is really just a result of that at the end of the day. I think that it's important that people consider for a moment that both of these systems have, or especially during the Cold War, had a extensive amount of propaganda being shared about them. And in the Cold War in particular, I remember thinking that, you know, just some really uh, terrible stuff about what was going on in Soviet Russia, and not that it was a paradise by any means, but, you know, that um, things that ended up being obviously untrue when the Iron Curtain fell. But on the same token, you know, I'm sure that people in Russia had some pretty messed up views about what was going on over here. And mm-hmm. there was totally. a, you know, people get, people in many ways, and this is one of the reasons why I did my Independence Manifesto video. I don't know if you ever watched it, but people who are tuning in, you can check it out on my YouTube channel. But it had to do with the left-right paradigm being a situation that's essentially built on getting people to be tribal about their beliefs. And then you get packaged with these ideas that don't necessarily suit you, but you feel like you're forced to pick one or the other, you know, kind of like our election. (laughs) Right. It's it's election night. If you say anything, anything bad about Trump, then you, Oh, you're obviously a Democrat and support Joe Biden. If you say anything bad about Joe Biden. Oh no, worse. You're a communist. You're a communist. You're not just, you're not just a Democrat. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, totally. You know, and it's that's the funny thing I kept saying to people about the election was that, you know, when I was watching the debates, the biggest lies that were told by Trump and Pence were were not actually as much about policy as much as they were about them accusing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris of being Bernie Sanders. And I was like, right. no, you're so right. wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, both of them kept saying things like, you support the Green New Deal, you support Medicare for all. And I'm like, no, they don't. That's why we didn't vote for them. (laughs) It's like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) But but anyway, um, as far as back to this. So I think, you know, like I was saying, there's there was a lot of propaganda about both. And I think that both. And if you get on the one side or the other of that, you don't believe anything that the other side said, because it must be propaganda, which is why, you know, these deep communists that I run into who are in Antifa and groups like it, especially the Stalinist ones. And I have to say, I was kind of shocked that there are enthusiastic Stalinists in the world, but there are. And, you know, one of them even just openly said that, you know, none of the people he killed were innocent. They were all like, you know, stingy landowners. And, you know, and I said, if I said, you're not going to really get too far with me if you're defending Stalin and saying he was just doing a good job of killing the right people. He's like, no, what you don't understand is that he should have killed more. And I'm like, okay, it was yeah, probably like 80 you. million people. Let's get real. It's like 80 million people, right? Uh, yeah, and it's the thing that is, you know, when it comes to trying to understand what happened is that because Jordan Peterson is somebody I listen to about some things and then not others, but he's really hard on communism. His big problem, though, is any kind of totalitarianism. He's against all of it, but. I really, I almost had him on my show at one point. I really wish that had happened because, you know, what I wanted to wow. say to him was like, it's not the idea that people could work together towards mutual interest that gets millions of people killed. 
What got millions right. of people killed was identity politics, was identifying totally. the enemy and then taking them out and shooting them in the head. And that's, and I, I talked with the, to Aaron about this too, is that the, the cause of the famines in the Soviet Union wasn't a failure to share. That was the propaganda that got spread was that they just didn't have enough food for everybody. So they started killing people. That isn't what happened. What actually happened is very similar to what is happening in South Africa, which is they, they kill off or chase off all the farmers. And now the people of South Africa are begging the, the people to come back and do the farming but to be white because now they have massive starvation because they took the land, but they don't know how to use it. And that's exactly what yeah. happened in the Soviet Union. The famines were created because they identified all of the landowners as the evil class that had to be put in their place, and they got rid of them. And then advanced agriculture, especially in a massive scale, there's a reason people go to college. You know, it's there's a yeah. lot of information you got to know, and if you don't know it, you know you're done. They the average peasant only knows their their particular part of the job. They don't know anything about rotations of crops. Well, and even without almanacs and you know even. Yeah, even in the old days before before all the technology, there was a, a systems and patterns to everything that needs to be done on a daily basis. And if you didn't know those things, it's going to fall apart quickly. Well, right, and that's and, but anyway, that's an element of that. And I I don't know enough about what was said by the Soviets about the capitalists, but I mean, I think um, you know it's at the same at the end of the day, it, those two dueling ideologies. I think they both kind of they both had people with nefarious interests who maintained a situation where they were told that eventually you can be like us if you just play the game right. And that's right. In the communists, it was like, we'll all be equal eventually. We promise. And with the capitalists, it's, you can all be rich and powerful. Eventually we promise. And they're yeah, both lies. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So Absolutely. go ahead. Um, yeah, these systems are designed to centralize power. And um, the fundamental thing that's happening on the planet that I think it's, it's ripe time for us to just get real about what's happening on the planet in terms of the game we play and how the strategy to win that game, right? It's pretty simple if you, if you ask me these days. We are playing a game on the planet where you win the game by having the most money and getting the most power. So getting money and getting the power is the, is, the, is, is, the plan, is the game we play on this planet. And I don't care if you say you're saving the trees or saving the oceans or the dolphins or you care about hunger or even, you know, even if your heart is the best intention, if you are working in this modern global socioeconomic paradigm, no matter what you attempt to do, at the end of the day, it is making money and getting power that ends up being the overriding factor um, towards the, what drives your, your decisions. And, um, and, and if you look at the strategy that it is to win this game, the winning strategy is basically sociopathic behavior. And so Absolutely. It, and it's like, yeah, you, you, you and, I think, and I think it's clear. I think that the science that studies are showing that in fact, socio, sociopathy is something that is learned to behavior very much. Um, so you can become more or less sociopathic throughout your life. Um, and, you know, so as you go down the road of wealth and power, you find yourself in the position to make more and more decisions over more and more people that are going to affect more and more people. And as you show, prove your ability to make decisions that affect the bottom line for your, corporate, for your masters, whoever they may be in corporations and government, whatever it may be, um, 
as you show that you're willing to make the decision that hurts people but that wins for the central powers, you will find your way yourself moving up the pyramid, having done more and more horrible, inhumane, disgusting acts of depravity, um, and um, you win. You win the game by doing this. So we live in a system that actually encourages that kind of behavior, and then we actually see this behavior playing out on the lower rungs of the pyramid, though, with this, this, this shitty behavior um, that people will have amongst each other. Um, to get into the, especially in these identity politics wars, right? Um, so, yep. um, yeah, go ahead. Well, you, you know, I just watched a documentary. Um, I had fallen behind on documentaries. I used to be a documentary nut, which is why I was called BTV. But um, was that there was one called Generation Wealth. And Generation Wealth was about, uh, I want to say it was made in like 2018. And, uh, it was like basically this woman had done a study because she was a photographer and traveled the world. And through traveling the world, she saw the negative effects of what happens when capitalism gets out of control in a lot of different small countries. And, you know, so one of the people that she met along the way was one of the extraordinarily wealthy banker types who was involved in like the, the bank bailouts and stuff. He's actually, unlike the America's most wanted list now. And, and like, he can't come back to the United States cause they'll arrest him. But he did the interview because now he, he's realized how much of a monster he had been and how he had completely alienated and pissed away all of his time with his family. And now like he literally, by the end of the interview broke down crying because, you know, uh, but before all of that, he just openly talked about it. You become addicted to wealth acquisition and it, yeah. it's a dopamine rush. And yes. so you get stuck on that. And then the thing is, is like, we believe that that's the path to happiness. But how many of these people end up totally fucking miserable? You know, it's not just this exactly. one guy. He was just somebody who was willing to come forward and say, I did this. It was terrible. I hurt people. I've ruined my life. Right. I've wasted all of my time with my family. All the things that are meaningful are gone. You know, I had all this money and it was just stupid, you know, and, but anyway, most of them are not willing to do that. And I remember reading another article about that was actually written by a therapist who takes care of wealthy people. And a lot of them are sociopathics people. You know, like that's, yeah. that's their whole thing. And that's why they're in, you know, this person's office, you know, because they're trying right. to understand how to relate to the, Like it causes all kinds of problems because then it filters into your family life. You know, like they were interviewing Don't, this guy's son in right. the same documentary and he didn't want to yeah. talk to his, like, he doesn't talk to his father anymore. And he hadn't for years. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and, and that's, you can't carry that with you everywhere. And I would, one of the things I said in my show with Lynn Wood, because Lynn Wood is a, you know, a very patriotic old school, you know, American guy. And I said, you know, I, as much as I'm not religious and, and he is, um, I said, I think the missing cog in the machine of American capitalism was Christianity because there was a time, you know, say the fifties, there were still ruthless capitalists in the fifties, but you know, you wouldn't Mm -hmm. have dreamed of laying off like 30% of your workers right before Christmas because it wouldn't be the right right thing to do. There was still a core morality behind the American capitalist that was based in Christianity at that time. And I would say the modern yeah. Trump voter is kind of the descendant of that group of people, ironically, even though Trump's not very Christian. But the, the Pence people, you know, Pence is very Christian, you know, but the, the yeah. point is, is that 
And Linwood agreed with me. He's like, no, you would never do that because you'd care about them too much. And I think right. what I studied on this was that it seems to me that the the Bible has been replaced by Ayn Rand and her thing, passing that book around. Well, what does that book say? What does her right. work say? Her work says altruism is a sin. You know, her work says, <laughs> yeah, her work says, you know, giving to people is immoral. Her work says that your, your employees are parasites, you know, and in all of her books, you know, the, the, the workers are the villains, you know, right. and the heroes right. are right. the, you know, the capitalists. You know, so so these are extremes. I, these are all extremes that you're that you're that you're talking about. And of course, your example, just because of your particular passionate orientation, is about the capitalists. But of course, you have the same patterns in in government. If, you know, the same exact things play out. Well, no, for sure. And I I think that well, I mean, but at the end of the day, the government in the United States is a plutocracy. It's a reflection of the capitalist system of the United States, and that's right. I would right. Think, well, well, see, what you're calling capitalism, we just have slightly different terminology. I've, there's a group of people that have, that have dubbed it Game A. So capitalism is such a charged word, Neil, because you know it means different things to different people. So you could have one with the Marxist definition where capitalist is like the private ownership of, of the um, production. And you can have a libertarian who you say capitalism, and they just think you mean free market. So it's really, really a charged word to begin with, right? And, but we do well, agree. Well, so is socialism thing, and so is communism. Totally, totally. But I think what we can agree on for sure is that there is this addiction, right, that you even named um, from some of your research, this addiction that is to making money and gaining power um, is, and, and that is the, the game we're all subtly playing on the planet. Um, that is the problem, and that is what we've dubbed, many people call it game A. So if you're playing the game to get money and power, you're playing game A. And you can play it in through uh, as a business person and as a capitalist, or you could play it uh, as a government official and become a, he's a corrupt politician, you know, which is, right. this, <clears throat> you're taking the grift. <clears throat> Excuse me. You're putting the deals together. You're doing now. You may, as a politician, you very well may be doing something that appears to benefit the people. But the bottom line is that's just your, your means to the end to get money because you know by putting the deal together to benefit the people, you're going to be on the take, you're going to be on the grift for, by making the deals happen with the various corporate players. And if you're not, then you're not a winning politician. If you don't know how to do that and get paid off and figure out how to do it, you're not a winning politician. You won't get reelected. That's something that Senator Gravel told me was that one of the things he figured out being involved in government was that the only way he was going to get anything done that he wanted done was by cheating. And, you know, he used the filibuster. He did a lot of different tricks. Bernie Sanders can't get a bill to the. Hello. Golly gee. I don't know if we're on the air or I'm on the air. Uh, Enhancement added. You still there? Oh, there we go. We're back now. Yeah. For some reason, sorry about that. That might have been my seconds. that might have been my internet. So I'll repeat what I said because if you didn't hear me, they may not have heard me either. Um, was just to say, okay. you know, Gravel found that if he wanted to get anything done, he had to cheat. So he had to use like the filibuster or reading top secret documents into the public record. Right. And, and, oh. right. and what is cheating? Cheating. Cheating is generally uh, like a form of conspiracy where somebody loses. Now reading. 
reading, of course, yeah, even reading the Pentagon Papers, a lot of people got exposed through that, and a bunch of people lost. A bunch of people got hurt by that. But in the end, he thought it was the right thing to do. But these are the types of decisions that you end up having to make um, in positions of power. And Bernie Sanders can't get a bill to the floor, so he became what was called the Amendment King. So, for example, when the coronavirus relief packages were being passed around, he managed to sneak in um, the enhanced unemployment and, you know, just little things like that are really the only way you can right, get anything right. done. You know, yeah. and it's ironically by doing yep. the same things they do. Because if you remember when we were talking about the Patriot Act, like when certain elements of the Patriot Act would get taken out, they would try to slide it into a budget bill or something like that. Right. Like you'd be reading a budget yeah. bill for public libraries and it would have, and we can, you know, search your house without a warrant. <laughs> You know, we just get <laughs> library in there books. somewhere. Yep, if you, exactly. If we believe that you may have that you may contain public li- books in your house that are public property. We get the right to search your house and name your right. firstborn. But that's but those are all you know. Basically, that's something that I've been trying to point out to people when we talk about right left was um, the coronavirus response is a perfect example of why there's really not that much distinction in the two parties as far as to how much they actually give a shit about us. And, you know, like in the very, very, very first relief packages, and I put that in quotes because they didn't really give us much, but was the democratic house passed um, two weeks of paid sick leave and then slid language in there that said that only, um, companies with less than 500 employees would have to pay it. So literally only small businesses would have to pay it. And then that moves on to the Republican controlled Senate and they come up with the $1,200 checks, but they put language in there so that people with no tax liability would only get $300. So that's not just poor people. It was elderly people, you know, basically that's like, I can tell you that, because that's what I would have gotten. <laughs> um, and that's like less than half of my paycheck, you know, $300. Yeah. Thanks. You know, um, but both sides did this. And the funny thing is, is like, I know this because I ran for Congress and I read the shit myself, you know, but to the average citizen, they don't know anything about that. They know about, well, you know, my side did this, your tribe did that, you know, they, they don't know, about who actually, you know, did anything to help them. And the only reason those bills ended up getting anything to help anybody was because partisans who snuck things in like Bernie and not just Bernie, there are other people who do it, but, you know, got anything done, Yeah. you know, and, and yep. we're so divided into thinking of it that way. Like with this current stimulus shit, both sides are equally at fault for why it's not getting passed. And they're both trying right. to point the fingers at the other side, you know, always, and, always. But I and think when you read this, point, though, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, getting back to your getting anything done, you have to cheat. You know, basically what that means is somewhere along the line, that cheating is leading to somebody getting rich off that, right? And and if actually what it turns out as a politician, if you're not willing to get your piece of the action, you're probably not very respected, and you probably won't get a lot of donations to get reelected. They want to know that you're on the take because they want to know that you're cor- as corrupt. And, and so it's just sociopathic behavior at the end of the day. And it's also conspiracy, Neil. Like a lot of people make a big word about, uh, make a big deal about the word conspiracy. Let's break down what conspiracy is, right? Conspiracy is a secret plan between two or more people 
You know somebody gets hurt, and that's why you have to keep it secret. So a secret plan, two or more people, and somebody gets hurt, right? That's a conspiracy. When you look at the behavior, when you talk about sociopathy, and you look at the driving behavior between, in a rivalrous competitive environment where the idea is to win at all costs, get as much money as you can, get as much power as you can, the, the winning strategy is this sociopathy, is conspiracy. Like, so when we talk about conspiracy theories, I mean, this is an important, important, important role in human society for people to research conspiracies. And we used to know that. Like, in our lifetime, Neil, there used to be that. There used to be investigative reporting. There used to be 60 Minutes that would come on every night and expose some major shit. You were like, what? Like, I can't believe that was going on. Thank God 60 Minutes is around. Uh, but that in, in, in the little minute bit of, uh, you know, whistleblowing that 60 Minutes was doing back in the day, it, even that little bit is gone these days. It's just gone. And the only that are doing any whistleblowing are in front of the public, in front of the, the world, having their lives destroyed openly. And, and nobody really just seems to notice these patterns. It's very interesting. Well, yeah. And that kind of brings us back to the capitalism and communism argument. I I remember I was watching this film called, I think it was called Iron and Silk. And it was about, it was actually based on a true story about a guy who traveled to China and he was an English teacher and he went to China because he wanted to study Kung Fu. And anyway, he was an English teacher. And at one point he's talking to his Chinese students and, you know, they're saying, well, how can you trust your media? Because, you know, the government doesn't have any control over it. (laughs) And he's thinking, (laughs) he kind of, gets quiet for a moment and says, well, actually, we think we can trust our media because the government doesn't have any control over it, you know, and right. like, so it was a culture war, you know, but at, at the same time, like what you're talking about is, is why, like you said, we used to have investigative journalism. We did. And then now they don't even, they don't even play around anymore. I mean, like when back in 2008, you and I were watching documentaries like out Fox and, and laughing about how bad Fox is, but they were still trying to pretend to be fair and balanced at that time, you know, right. Um, and it, it, it had to be an expose documentary for you to be able to find out just how not balanced it was, um, you know, and right. at the same token, MSNBC is just as bad in reverse. So it's, it's pro left right. Fox. They don't even attempt to do anything. And if you like, it, that's actually a good example. So like, uh, in order to get good news for me, if I want something that sounds kind of mainstream, like I listen to um, Crystal Ball and Sagar, I'm not going to be able to say his last name, but they do a show called Rising, and she's a progressive Democrat, and he is a populist Republican, and they work together to tell you know the stories from their perspectives, you know, and they're still reporting on the Epstein trial, they're still reporting on what was going on with you know with Epstein, and it's funny is they're the only ones who are doing it you know, and they have a big YouTube following, you know, but the mainstream media doesn't want to talk about it at all, you know, and one of the things that they revealed, they played the clip of that, uh, I'm going to forget her name, but there was a mainstream uh, media personality who had the story on Epstein like four years ago and was the, the story got killed, you know, because there's an awful lot of wealthy yeah, people broken. Right, who broken. didn't want that out. You know, she got yeah. caught basically on a hot mic talking about it, you know, but that it makes you wonder what else is, are the wealthy paying for people not to find out about. And so that's where you start right. to think it's right. like, well, if you think that your freedom is based on everything being for sale, 
I don't know if it's necessarily going to work out that way because that means the people who have more money have more control and essentially more freedom and freedom to take away things from other people. Nobody ever really looks at like that. You know, I mean, when you get to the anarcho-capitalists, you can have some pretty crazy conversations with them because they have some ideas that, ironically, even Mises and Ayn Rand, their heroes, have said they're crazy. Um, both both Mises, Ludwig von Mises and Ayn Rand have said very negative things about anarcho-capitalists and anarchists in general. You know, but basically, in their system, everything's for sale. And they believe that the invisible hand will, will bring about maximum freedom in that situation. And well, I, go yeah. ahead. The invisible hand always be, it ends up being the people who are willing to do the most shitty thing, be the most sociopathic. They, are, they become the invisible hand every time. Well, because the people who have the most money have the most control over the invisible hand. I, I mean, that's. <laughs> well, right, right. That, and you get the most money by doing the shitty thing. Right, exactly. You know, and never mind like what that does to the environment or, you know, what it does to people or how it leads to slavery. You know, ironically, in the pursuit of freedom, you know, we end up with more slaves, you know, and that's um, I, I think that people don't recognize it. And I think it's largely because, you know, what did a I don't know if it was Mark Twain, somebody some famous guy said the reason socialism never took root in America is because everybody here believes that they're all a bunch of temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Like, <laughs> right, basically, right. Okay, so everybody has yeah, the illusion that if they just work hard, you know, they, they too. Yeah. You know, and I remember right. Ha- right. having conversations with people in the early days about that. Like, one of them said, well, I want my Learjet. I'm like, well, what do you need a Learjet for? Because this is a discussion about the Venus Project stuff. You know, right. and uh-huh. he didn't, He to him, it was all social status. It's just he... You know, he wanted to have that social status and felt he was entitled to it. It's like people literally become addicted to the hierarchical or hi- hierarchical, <laughs> the hierarchy. Basically, yeah. they get addicted to the idea right. that if they can be superior to somebody game. else. Right. If you're good at playing the game, which means uh, to, I'm proposing that means you're willing to do shitty things that aren't that other people aren't willing to do. Right. And you're at a right. low level. If you're just making a couple hundred grand a year, I mean, you don't have to do that much shitty things. You just have to kind of you know, fight for that promotion over the next guy. And, you know, maybe that might involve a little backstab here and there, but nothing too horrible. And you start getting up into, you know, talking about millions and millions of dollars, tens of millions. If you're going to make, if you're going to make in this country, um, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, $40 million a year, you're going to start finding yourself getting invitations to various um, things where, you know, the people will sit around and nod at each other and, and you'll be basically tested to see if you're willing to engage in sociopathic behavior. This is basically gang, the same thing gangs do, right? If you want to join the gang, hey, man, you've got to go rob that girl. Go rob that woman right now. Then you'll be in our gang, right? Um, because now they know they have something on you. Now you know together that you are willing to be shitty people and do the wrong thing, and you have that bond together. The exact same pattern plays out in the elite, you know, sociopathic behavior of the elitists and government officials and all these things, um, the same kind of behavior. And I have no doubts whatsoever that that goes as extreme as, you know, this kind of um, pedophilia, you know, doing these things with children and even to the point of, the human sacrifice. I, I have no problem believing in any of that stuff, Neil, that it can and does go that far eventually. But uh, lest we lose anybody on that stuff, I'm wondering if we can get back because you started to talk about one of the key points about um, 
about the Americans, they're temporarily embarrassed millionaires. So, like the the, the unique and interesting thing I proposed that made America great uh, in the world for for those for whatever a hundred years or something was um, that attraction to individualism. Right, the, the, you have a chance uh, to embrace individualism and get away from collectivism, um, and then and then that kind of turned created its own perversion ultimately at some point along the way. Right. No, I agree. Okay. Um, I think that, yeah, I, I think that individualism taken to its farthest extreme creates some pretty tyrannical shit. The, the funny thing is, is when you think about it, ironically, a dictator <laughs> is <laughs> absolutely an extremist in the individualism camp. Um, people right, don't think right. about it like that. Uh-huh. But it is. Yeah. It's it's taken to its fullest extent, um, and I think that basically, when you come to collectivism, you know, it has its, its own problems. Obviously, you know, because then the individual's yeah. issues can be you know put to the side. So you have to have a balance. Um, That's right. Of those things, and I think that too many extremes of one or the other is a problem. But like, like I remember talking about this off the air. The Libertarian Party is so terrified of collectivism that you can't even discuss doing something in like a group of a half dozen people before they start worrying right. that, oh, no, we're collectivists now. What are we going to do? You know, like Ayn right. Rand even jokingly called her group the collective. Um, <laughs> the, the, the funny thing about that is that like in her circle – she was absolutely the despotic like cult leader and right. she had certain rules about things like one of them was that you know because a character in her book had what she called like a rational affair which means like basically somebody cheated on their husband and she was openly cheating on her husband a lot um and <laughs> you know because of what was good for her was right that's how she always put it so then one of the guys that was one of her subordinates in the in her cult, like decided to have an affair of his own with a younger woman. And Ayn Rand got pissed, slapped him across the face, like broke her precious non-aggression principle and kicked him out of the cult for daring to have an affair. You know, and this is the guy that she's having an affair on her husband with, you know, like right, right. The, the, basically what I'm getting at is just that the selfishness taken to its, like fullest extreme starts to become damaging to other people. Like you're supposedly doing things that are just good for yourself and the collective should just let you do whatever you want until you're hurting other people, you know, but she never saw it that way, you know? um, And I, that's the part of it. I mean, you also can't have though, like groups that have these crazy ideas that, you know, that circumvent any individualism or you end up with situations like, you know, Antifa, you know, BLM types who, how dare you even disagree with the slightest amount of our dialogue, you know? Right, exactly. We're going to stamp out your right to speak. You're not allowed to talk. And if you try to talk, you know, we're going to pull the fire alarm at your lecture at the college. If we catch you at a protest, we're going to hit you over the head with a bike lock, you know, all in the name of protecting the group philosophy. Right, exactly. Um, No individual thought allowed. No uniqueness. You must conform. Right, and that's that's totally wrong as well. And that's those 
aspects, you know, they tend to play out that way. And I think that um, people, they, the extremes of either, basically you need both for different things, you know? So for example, right. exactly. left libertarians, which is one of the um, lesser known philosophies of libertarianism believes in voluntary collectivism, meaning you know, yeah. if you don't have enough money to start a business as an entrepreneur, what if you and, say, a dozen of your friends voluntarily collectivize to create a cooperative right. business, and then you go engage in capitalism that way? And then you don't right. have gross hierarchical structures where one guy exactly. whose job consists of making phone calls and attending meetings is not making 300,000 more percent than the average worker right. anymore. Exactly. You know, I think that's really close to the philosophy I propose um, to answer this. So the problem you have there, Neil, the next problem you have now that you've started the business collectively with your friends is you have the tragedy of the common. Right. Oh, I'm familiar with that concept. Right? You, if it's going to work, you right, have right. to be like essentially educated. Right. Right. Well, but, the tragedy of the commons is, you know, right, when everybody assumes that somebody else is handling that on behalf of the whole and nobody actually does handle it on behalf of the whole. <laughs> and so the commons gets trashed because everybody's self-interest, actually. Um, and so so there is this so there's this good thing about individuals that says, no, I just get the job done and I do it because I'm going to do it and do it right. And I'm going to take care of things. And if, if, if nobody is, you know, um, taking care of it, well, then I'm going to do it and then it's mine. Because I took care of it. And there's some logic to that, right? It's like, like what is property ultimately at the end of the day? I would propose property is something you take from nature, put your energy and, and time and, and intellectual energy into, and produce something more valuable to humans, right? That's what we consider property. And I think there's a, valid, there's a natural validity to that, which, is, which means that if you come onto a new land and stick your flag in the dirt and build a big fence around a couple hundred acres, uh, that means you own the flag and you own the little six inches uh, where your fence is. But you, you can't just claim everything in between just because you put a fence around it. That's kind of a right. natural um, understanding of property. Well, when it comes to the tragedy of the commons, I'm familiar with that. I can The examples in the Left Libertarian channel that I use for the, um, the essays that the guy puts together that are very good um, he brings up that like in the successful cooperative corporations that already exist, Mondragon, for example, is actually a very big and successful corporation, but right. every, but they have meetings and they talk about things on a regular basis. Like the only way it can work is as if everybody is responsible, but you also in a capitalist system with left libertarian cooperatives, you still have the incentive to take care of everything because in such a business, your direct profit is completely correlated to how well the business is doing. So right. you, you have a different motive at that point. If you're cooperative, right. like, you know, if you and I and Brian and, you know, three others decide to have a collective lemonade stand, then it makes us more money if the lemonade stand is running well, you know, and we don't, that's right. you know, that's, that's the point. I guess what I'm getting at is I, exactly. I've talked to, there are people who think that tragedy of the commons is unavoidable. And you know, right. I think that there's a different problem. Uh, you know, tragedy of the commons is a pitfall you have to fight, but at the same time, there's another pitfall 
where the guy that I mentioned earlier who answers phone calls and goes on vacation for two weeks or two months out of the year and, you know, <laughs> drives a Ferrari and has an enormous house, you know, and can take days off whenever he wants is making millions and billions of dollars and his average workers are struggling to get by, you know, like say the right. CEO of Walmart. I mean, Walmart's done a lot to try to clean up its reputation, but for a long time there, the average Walmart employee was making like seven twenty-five. you know, yeah. <laughs> and the, the company, yeah. the people so, who own that company are ridiculously wealthy. Right, right, exactly. So, um, so, so let's, we can break this down now into the good thing and to what's good and bad about the individualism and, um, and collectivism here. Or, so what is good about these, this entrepreneurial type, right? There's something valuable they offer the world and it's a clearly naturally valued thing because, um, they, because it's, it's needed and it happens and people follow them consistently. Right. And so the thing that they do well um, these entrepreneur types is they 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 can look at complex systems and look and understand how to create efficiencies within those complex systems, right? That's basically what a business person does. They say, well, look, I see how apples are going from the farm to the grocery store, and there's a much more efficient way to do that. And if I can do that, I can sell the apples for cheaper and still make a profit, and still everybody gets their apples cheaper, and the farmer gets even paid more. If you can pay the farmer more, sell it cheaper to the consumer, and get a cut, guess what? You have just created an all-win efficiency, and of course, now we do need to consider things like: Are you affecting uh, the natural, the environment, the, the, the nature, the earth itself, uh, animal life, things like that? If you're if you're fully um, caring individual, um, but but there are ways. There are people who ha- do have this skill to identify efficiencies in the system, make a net gain for all life, and and what happens in those situations is when they do that, people are like, "Wow, thank you so much. You made it better for all of us." We're so glad that you're getting rewarded because not only did you make it better for us, but you found a way to reward yourself in the process. Bravo, brother. You know, but what happens is um, that, that that person had that clarity in that moment. And, and in our modern society, what we've allowed to happen is that that person kind of finds themselves in this position of being, okay, do it again now and, um, and do it forever because that's your only job and the only thing you need to do. And they, and they believe that about themselves because they've done it once or twice, and they believe that they're the only person to create efficiencies, and, they're the only, and they start to think of themselves as smarter and better. Um, and uh, maybe they are getting And more things, deserving. Yes, they find them, <laughs> right, right, and it becomes a whole attitude thing. And then it, then it really becomes problematic when their wealth passes to the next generation, to their children, um, who, who didn't have to do anything for the, to create a net win for the world um, in order to get this wealth. So – um, these, these, this is not natural. There is a tension there, and um, the natural thing that humans want to do when they see that is bring that person down and take them down off their pedestal, which is healthy behavior. They should be brought down, right? There should be a reward for creating efficiencies in the system that's an all-win for all life, but you don't need to get multi-generationally rich. Right. No, I, I definitely agree with that. And You kind of mentioned a little bit earlier about like what what amounts to like how much is enough, too. Like They don't honestly, because I have some very wealthy family, like my grandmother owned the majority of the orange groves in California at one point. Um, That's how wealthy she was. And I remember talking to different like relatives of mine, like my older brother, for example, he could have had his college paid for by them, but if he was to do that, he 
kind of becomes like part of their cult. <laughs> like, is in that part of the <laughs> right. family kind of determines who you're allowed to date, and you need to go to all these functions, and like it basically takes over your life if you're going to sell out to them. Mm-hmm. You need to become part of their mm-hmm. entourage. And he said he yeah, had no interest in that club. Right. Like most of the conspiracies we see, which is the shitty sociopathic behavior, right? Most of the conspiracies are based around access to information. If you have more information about what's happening in the economy or what's happening in some business system, you can take advantage of it over other people. And so you need to be, have, they need to have something on you. They need to have some reins on you. It's a very basic gang behavior that, as we described earlier. Right. And that's in, so he just decided he didn't want any part in it. But one of the things that he understood was that he, he would encounter these people that it's like, unless you're making a certain amount of money, you're, you're not even the same species as far as they're concerned. Right. Like they exactly. they stop thinking of you as even human. Like that's right. That's, I mean, you can that's see how that they, in without elite, a pencil clearly. can, you know, but that's, well, what does that sound like? Well, that sounds like, somebody running a gulag killing a million people doesn't it you know and yeah when you talk about so like in the very beginning this was one of the things i would say was scariest when the covid19 initially came out and we if everybody right and left had not yet taken sides on the issue as far as to whether or not it was legitimate that that wasn't part of the dialectic yet but what i remember distinctly was a couple of major things. One of them was how many people, because initially I was like, Jesus Christ, if this is what they say it is, this could easily kill my daughter. You know, I was really worried about it. And there were people that, that I knew who had literally, like my daughter had coached their kids. Like this is how much they knew her. And they knew that she had a breathing problem. And they just kind of said that's, too bad like it was they and so it wasn't just about my daughter it was about anybody like they if we went with all of the worst you're talking about wearing a mask this is before the we're even talking about that this is like i'm talking about very beginning um Uh it's not just about wearing the mask it wasn't about that and again this is not an endorsement of whether or not it was real or not let's let's go under the assumption here that this is bad and that's what everybody initially believed and right. people were facing the I fact. Sure well, right. And they were facing the fact that this could kill millions of people. And a lot of my capitalist friends were just kind of saying that's what was just going to have to happen. You know, <laughs> and like there was a lieutenant right. governor of Texas, for example, who came out and said that your grandparents are willing to die for capitalism. You know, and he didn't use those exact words, <laughs> right, but right. that's what it amounted to. Now, what I'm yeah, getting yeah. at is, is that these are people who knew my daughter could die and were just kind of like, yeah, that's too bad. You know, and what occurred to me, ironically, and I remember making this point and it pissed some people off, but they couldn't really argue with me. I said, you know, because like not but like a month earlier when Bernie was still in the race, I would post stuff on my Facebook wall in favor of Bernie and his ideas. And they would be freaking out about communism and killing millions of people. And how, because the, the common, again, the common propaganda understanding was that millions of people were murdered in the name of saving the communist economy. That's what they believe it was. Now we have this pandemic that could kill millions of people. And I guess they're just going to have to die 
to save the capitalist economy. And they didn't like the irony of what I was pointing out, but they couldn't argue with me because it was the exact same thing. Right. This pattern of sociopathy, this, this, even you could go psychopathy when you, when you really have the ability to just dehumanize large swaths of the population has really come prevalent um, with this COVID thing. And I think um, that really gets us to face some of the shadow. I think, I think every one of us has in the back of our mind, that group of people, that one group, I mean, I'm a nice person. I care about people, but you know, if that one group of people, if they were just like dead, like I think the world would probably be a better place. You know, I'd be cool with that. And then, you know, would you, would you really, would you, it, it seems innocent, right? But if you really consider that the elites on this planet um, have the same perspective, it's just that the group that they think could just as easily die is literally 99.9999% of the population. It's the same thought process. They just happen to be slightly more extreme about it. But, you know, really, we've got to face the common um, shitty behavior and the, the shitty way we think about our fellow humanity if we are going to get any better on this planet. Well, right. And that's, you know, um, I think that it's important that people recognize this dark side of capitalism is just as bad as the dark side of communism, you know, and that what's, and I still stick with my point of what's more insidious about it is that people don't realize it right away, you know, but for example, Elon Musk like pre-COVID, you know, was a different guy than Elon Musk post-COVID. And the kinds of stuff he said on Joe Rogan before COVID in comparison to the stuff he said afterwards, you know, it was kind of like, you know, it became clear that as far as Elon Musk is concerned, if people are going to have to die so he can get his rockets into the air to get to Mars, then that's just what's going to have to happen. You know, and somebody confronted him about a a coup where they took over a small country so he could get the resources he needed for his space program. You know, that, that kind of shit happens in, you know, capitalist countries all the time. It's just, it's different because we find ways of doing it more subtly. This is what I was talking about when I said that capitalism simply externalizes the mass murder to other countries. And so therefore it doesn't get seen. Um, You know, whereas when a communist country does it, they just invade and take their shit. Oh, they, they they don't even play yeah. around. It's oh. like, yep, we're in Af- we're in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is ours now, you know. Yeah. Um, but they're both doing it. Did you have a comment? Oh no, no, I, I don't. Go ahead. Oh okay. So, but anyway, that the reason I brought all that up, and the funny thing is, is later on, as I kept talking to them about it, they my friends kind of snapped out of it. But you know, and my views on COVID now are I'm a little bit kind of like in the cautious, like I'm watching, but I I definitely don't think that what's going on is necessarily it. But one of the things that Jacques Fresco would have pointed out is that the reason we can't trust each other is that in a capitalist system, everybody's gaming everybody, you know? So there are people who stand to make money on both sides of the situation. Right. So, so just like I, I again, where this is where I want to, I want you to say in a game A system, we're playing a game to get the most money and power, right? Instead of in a capitalist system. So just, just to clarify that, but I think we mean you mean what I mean when you say it. Well, yeah, I, but I'm, we're we're talking about the this conversation is primarily about the worst extremes, you know, um, right. of both. I mean, it's it's the same thing when I say under communism, I and mean, because 
there are communists at the Twin Oaks commune right now that don't put people in gulags and have no interest in that. And, you know, they have a open society about what they're going to do with their commune. You know, that can happen there, you know, and sure. there are socialists like, you know, I'm, I, I mentioned Brian Moore in my comment on one of your Facebook posts, you know, Brian Moore's right. version of socialism is not totalitarian. It is heavily state-based. Like he does believe in nationalizing a lot of things. You know, but he, if you remember during that debate we did on revolution broadcasting, he was 100% on board with all of the civil liberty stuff. Like, you know, he wanted to get rid of all God, the sodomy that was a laws. Long time and, ago. Yeah, no, yeah, but I we remember. Had a, it. We had one of the world's first, um, uh, what we called, we, we, we still say this day, third party. We had the world's first third party presidential debate. Uh, along with Christy de Tobin, she did a live one with video, um, and we did we did one on Revolution Broadcasting on internet radio. And right. what do we have? Like eight candidates? Yeah, there was an independent. There was Chuck Baldwin. There was oh you know, yeah, but that's my point is yeah, is that awesome. his version of socialism <laughs> is not my preference. But it but if I was to find myself in a country like that, I feel I could navigate it. But um, but there are, that's why the things I have to say to people on the left all the time, and it's why I'm actually working on putting together a, a presentation for my right-leaning listeners, just so that they understand the difference between a Nordic model, Bernie Sanders, democratic socialism, you know, social democracy system, and communist system, and the radical differences between them. And the funny thing is, is that Nothing made that more clear to me than interacting with the Green Party, which is currently under under basically dealing with a, a radical communist takeover, which is the reason I couldn't vote for Howie Hawkins, is because the, the people that are, you know, like there is definitely a difference. And those people openly speak negatively, very negatively about Bernie Sanders, because he wasn't communist enough for them. Like, you know... <laughs> That's their point of view right. that they, you know, that they were basically saying, well, Bernie was like our compromise, you know, and now that he's out of the way, fuck that, you know, or we're going back to radical communist and anarcho communist thinking, you know, people don't recognize that there are different levels of that on both directions, I guess would be the way to put it. You know, so for example, mm. Andrew Yang considers himself a capitalist. He just calls it like a humanist capitalist, meaning like who actually gives a shit about the people in that system <laughs> and recognize right. so you tell him when you tell him that, that there's a coup because of the precious metals that are needed for mining in one of his operations, he's got to care about it and do something about it and look into it and maybe change the way it works. No, that's exactly what he do. That's, that's a guy I hope runs again. Cause I think he, he, yeah. he knows what the fuck he's doing, but at the same well, time, yeah, now that he's Tulsi turned, turned out to be a total sellout. Andrew Yang is definitely the next, like he's the guy. He's who could really potentially unite this country and get this, this division bullshit out of the way. Well, and, but at the same time, you know, this is something actually, ironically, both he and Elon Musk have in common is the idea of UBI. And, you yeah. know, it's funny, you know, nobody can argue that Elon Musk is not a capitalist, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. and, but ironically, I've heard that even some of the libertarians are for a UBI. So I haven't heard what their version well, of it is. It well, really yeah. is unavoidable, I think. Well, that's well, and it's it's unavoidable because you know th this is the <laughs> the funny argument I've always had from being involved in the Zeitgeist movement. We talked about uh, technological unemployment, and people yeah, would argue exactly. back, 
based on the idea, like, you know, I remember actually having somebody quote a book by Hazlitt, who I guess is a big name in the free market economics group called Economics in One Lesson. And so they, this, I'm arguing with these guys on YouTube, like we were sending videos back and forth to each other back in the day when you could, you know, do an answer video. I mean, people still do it, but it used to literally be built into YouTube that people would visibly see your answer, you know, on their video. But anyway, you know, and so I read the book and it talked about why technological unemployment was a myth, but it was quoting shit that took place what? like in the 1700s. I was like, yeah, yeah. Okay. But yeah. No, that's ridiculous. Not... And it was the same conversation that I was saying earlier. I mean, it really, you can look at it from a different angle, describe it differently. You could just say that when you create what I was talking about efficiencies in the system, right? When you create so many efficiencies in the system, and this is the ultimate goal of Jacques Fresco and the Venus project. This is what Jacques would talk about where you could have a world run so automated by that it didn't take humans to do anything. I mean, when you read, reach that level of efficiency, you simply don't need to work. <laughs> like not everybody has to have a job. You just get to chill out and relax and do what you want. And you want to build stuff, great build stuff, but not because you have to, like, you know, because you feel like it. And, and that's well, a good right. thing. And so the problem we have is that in the, in the game a economy we have, where it's about getting money and power as the efficiencies get created, of course, all of that increased uh, saved wealth, saved energy is going up the top of the pyramid to the wealthiest people at the top, and it's not getting distributed across. So that's why we have this whole argument about all this stupid stuff, um, because we just simply don't have a system that allows um, those efficiencies to benefit all life on the planet. Well, right, and more to the point, if we continue to be in a, as my friend from a Community Planet would say, an every-man-for-himself economy, then automation is going to lead to serious problems. We can't have a system yeah. where... There's these small group of, you know, like I guess the kind of people Marx would definitely have vilified in the Communist Manifesto. You can't have this small group of people owning the means of production who doesn't need workers anymore because then they have no use for you. And unless right. you happen to also own that means of production, well, now you're just going to die. <laughs> right. Like, and that's, and, that's where yeah, my, my primary work is about from um, individual ownership to collective stewardship. We, we need to realize that no matter how you talk about ownership, at the end of the day, what you're talking about is temporal stewardship. No matter how, you just can't come up to any other conclusion that I'm aware of, right? So we are stewarding assets on this planet on behalf of the whole, on behalf of all life, on behalf of this planet that we all share together. And every decision that, that is made about an asset has the potential to affect your life or to affect my life affect people's lives in some way. And when decisions over assets that we all share are affecting our lives in certain ways, we all have the right to have our voice heard in that. Hey, you're affecting me negatively. Like you're, you're coughing in my face. Hey, you're, you're breathing smoke in the room I'm in. Excuse me. Would you mind not fucking me up over here? <laughs> right. No, that's, um, so yeah, yeah, if we could just sure. create a system where we can have all the voices heard and we can have conversations and when people are negatively affected and it's not an all win situation. Um, and, um, you know, I'll, I would love to like, just kind of kneel when the time is right. Cause I do have to wrap it up pretty soon to share a little more about the particular work I've been doing. And, um, you know, anybody who's interested in transcending these debates of individualism versus collectivism of, of uh, capitalism versus communism. And you want to help build new systems that just easily and effortlessly transcend this bullshit. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's what I've been working on for the last few years. Excellent. And you should definitely also check out Aaron Hawkins' work 
um, Storm Clouds Gathering, he just released a video that I shared with you, and my viewers should watch it too, um, where he's kind of talking about that as well, just that people need to kind of, we need to change our relationship with the economy. We need to change our relationship with the state, but it needs to be done in such a way that makes us no longer dependent on it as it currently exists. And, and not in like the anti-welfare point of view, but more of a, this economy is eventually not going to have a use for us. So if we don't figure out a way to exist inside it, we're going to die. <laughs> so it's right. better. Right. Totally. You know, that's how I used to explain totally. the Phoenix yeah, I, project to libertarians. But anyway, go ahead. I know you got to go soon. Yeah, so. no, I look forward to uh, um, connecting with Aaron. I haven't talked to him. I think it's 2012 when he moved to the island. I talked to him when he was down on the islands, and that was a major storm. And like, I, and he went offline, and I never heard from him again. So I was like, I'm glad to know he's alive and and he's still at it because he's certainly brilliant. And um, but yeah, um, the work I've been doing is all on the URL protocol.love. You can just go there, and um, it's it just proposes the idea that um, it is through vulnerable transparency. So in all the interactions that we're all having with each other in the socio-economy, um, if we can bring great transparency and whole opticism to that, everybody can see what's happening, and we can all come to our own independent judgments about how well that's going and, and who's being affected negatively. And, and we can actually algorithmically identify what I call rivalrous behavior, and, and that kind of behavior is the, the behavior that become, that is basically I'm trying to win a game now, and I'm not looking out for the best interests of all life anymore. I'm looking out for my personal interests. That's a rivalrous behavior. With the right level of vulnerable transparency in our socioeconomy, we can actually algorithmically identify that rivalrous behavior and just adjust it. We don't have to get like it all bent out of shape about it because this is just something that humans do. If humans are put in a group from time to time, they're going to get a little selfish thought in their head and they're going to start going down that road. And if it's allowed, they can be the winner of the game every time, right? But if we can just say, hey, you're doing that thing, Bob. Remember? Remember we agreed not to do that thing. Uh, can we have a conversation about that and create a situation where you get what you want, Bob, and everybody else gets to win too? Like this really is not inconceivable. And it literally, um, as a developer since 1980, I started programming when I was a kid. Uh, and with all that experience and then my uh, using a software engineering lens to look at human behavior and socioeconomics with multiple activist startups and multiple tech startups through the um, 2000s and 2010s, um, I was able to just identify these human patterns that um, that work and human patterns that get into rivalrous dynamics where we're competing with each other um, in kind of a to win over rather than an all win. And um, I've just laid out all the details to how we can transcend these ideas. And it really doesn't seem that hard when we understand some of the fundamental concepts. And again, the URL is protocol.love. Thanks for coming on, Ray. I really appreciate it. It was a, it was a stimulating conversation as usual. And, I will put a link to that in the description of this broadcast and into the YouTube version of it as well. So, um, but uh, I look forward to hearing more about it. So um, my parting words to my listeners, thanks for tuning in tonight. Um, I hope you enjoyed this broadcast. Please share this broadcast. I am now in a state where I've done enough stuff about controversial topics that I believe I'm probably being, kind of indirectly shadow banned by Google and other outlets. So it's important that you share not just mine, but all of the independent journalism that you like, um, because the users individually sharing is the best way to get around that algorithmic problem. Um, and as of now, Power I'm still not, yeah, <laughs> I'm still not uh, 
really emphasizing any looks at anything um, as far as financially. I mean, there is a Patreon and I have a subscribed star started, but it's not a big deal right now. Um, if my diagnosis for what's wrong with me is um, continues to look as bleak as it might, I may literally be disabled. If that happens, then this may become essentially part of what I would call my job. When that happens, I'll be pushing for donations more. But right now, this is more about just keeping my sanity during the pandemic and having intelligent conversations. Um, yeah. So thank you, well, everybody. I'll, then I'll say it, Neil. You know, you know, we've been friends for a long time, and you, you're a hard worker, and you're a great dad. And um, I really – I would love to see um, – you have the kind of audience who would love to see you um, having a, a, an income off, off your work and uh, just, to, you know, a little something every month to, to have you be supported. So um, – if you're listening to this, go and, and uh, get Neil um, some support so, so he knows that you're appreciating his work. Well, right. And again, priority right now, take care of yourself in this pandemic. But, you know, if it comes to that point, I'll, I'll let you guys know. But, you know, I have done that in the <laughs> past and I did okay with it. But I, I, it's not my interest because I don't – if it becomes a job, you lose some of your passion for it. But I'm literally to the no, point where it Neil, looks like I'm going to have to lay down in a bed to work. <laughs> Oh jeez, so, you already yeah. said all that though. I was saying the other thing, so you can let me say it. Okay, so Ray will be the dirty capitalist, and and I will be the communist. <laughs> <laughs> thanks all for right. having me on, Neil. No problem. Okay, I'm gonna play some George yep. Carlin, and um, thanks a lot, everybody. But there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, re the wealthy, that, the real owners, the big, wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. They're, they're, they're irrelevant. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media, media news, all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interests. That's right. You know something? They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table to figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your Social Security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club. 
and you ain't in it. You and I are not in the big club. By the way, it's the same big club they use to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged, and nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hard-working people, white-collar, blue-collar, it doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. Good, honest, hard-working people continue. These are people of modest means. Continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all, at all, at all. Yeah. You know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. <laughs>